before we talk about that, obviously the listeners, welcome to Kino Kingdom, don't know what we're talking about. I want to talk about, um, I've changed my microphone um, to, a, to a, a more swishy one on a microphone arm, so now I do feel like Whispering Bob Harris, which is good. But what happened, I haven't sold anything on like Gumtree for a very long time, I think it's been about seven years, and I thought I'll sell my old my old microphone so i went on there and it's only a few months old and this guy contacted me and said oh i'm just it was only for 85 quid right and he contacted me and said oh hey just checking if it's still for sale and i said yes mm-hmm. and he said um oh yeah i'll so i can get to where you live by like between four and five today if nice. that's great and i said yeah that's fantastic perfect um <laughs> and he said when i get there we, you know we can he told me he would have to take two buses and it would be a three-hour round trip to get to where I live. And he said, mm-hmm. yeah, when I get there, we can discuss the price. And mm-hmm. I said, I don't feel like we need to, to discuss it. I think you know what it is. <laughs> um, it's so just I, two numbers, isn't it? And uh, he said, you know, can I meet you by, you know, the Millennium Center, which is like a five-minute walk from my house. And I said, yeah, that, that's fine. You know, I'll walk up there. And then he said, actually, can we meet at the end of Newport Road? And I thought, that is an hour walk away from me, isn't it? Or, like, I'd have to get a taxi or something. So I said, no, the Millennium Center's fine. And and then he said, oh, that's a shame. I was hoping we could meet up um, Newport Road and, you know, just talk it talk it over. And I thought, what? 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 What's happening? It's a I'm simple transaction. Things. So it, it turned out that I said, to him, look, I, I'll take 80. I'm not dropping any lower. And hey, he said, oh, that's a real shame. I was hoping to pay, you know, max 65 quid. And I thought, why am I paying for your travel expenses? Why? <laughs> why is that involved in this transaction? Like, it was because he would have had to do a three hour round trip for him to say, oh, would you take 65? And for me to say, no. So it was really bizarre. And it's put me off. I've got a few things I'm getting rid of, bits of kit. And I just thought, why is it always so irritating? Why can't they? It it's, just. Yeah. It's relentless. I know. I know. I saw stuff on Gumtree and it. I, I just ignore people. If they say, oh, will, you take, will you take 20 quid less than I'm asking? No, I'm not even going to answer. I put, you know, if you put in the ad, no offers, please, then there's no excuses. They can't, they can't like get aggravated by the fact that you're not taking offers. Um, yes, yeah, so I just wanted to get that off my chest because it just, it just irritated me. And it was the first response as well, which was extra irritating. Um, so I know, Rupert, that we've both got a lot of films going on. And I just I thought we could launch into one that we've we've both seen as part of our Action Men Night. And that was a follow-on from the last episode, and that's Alone in the Dark 2. Um not yes. starring Christian Slater, but uh starring a plank of wood. <laughs> a plank of wood with a blank face drawn on it. <laughs> Um, oh my god! I've typed in "Alone in the Dark" too, and it's come with a game. I don't, I don't want that. I, Bear in mind as well that Christian Slater, we, we know what Christian, what Christian Slater looks like. So obviously, they've replaced him with an Asian American actor, ten years his junior. I mean, why wouldn't they? Yeah, Rick Uni or Rick Yoon. Um, and it's bizarre because the film. There's no real point talking about the plot initially, just to lead in so everyone knows if they haven't seen "Alone in the Dark" too. Um, people say Alone in the Dark, the worst film I've made. Not only is that untrue, like its own sequel is worse than it. Yes. So 
Um, but yeah, the fact they've cast an Asian American as, as Edward Carnby over Christian Slater is because, of course, he comes he comes into shot, and mm. he doesn't say his name for like fifteen minutes. So you just think, oh, yeah. I don't know who that is. And then he says, "I'm Edward Carnby." New hero, which just, they might as well have had, like. But that's not really the problem. The, I mean, it'd be fine if he could act, but he. It's not that he can't act. It's just he doesn't act. <laughs> I, he doesn't I do anything. He's of the Al Cliver school. <laughs> the Al Cliver school of acting. We've talked about Al Cliver being the worst actor we've ever seen. Uh, and if anyone wants to get a taste of that, they should watch Endgame from 1983. But th- this was this was honest. It was a more modern take on it. And I think the only reason. Um, it, it, we didn't think it was worse than Al Cliver. He was worse than Al Cliver, is because it's it's more quickly edited. Whereas Endgame was just on Al Cliver's face, and there was a lot of reused footage. But he, the moments in this film of Rick Eunice getting shot, stabbed, possessed by demons, and his facial expression does not change. Mm. It's it, it's an astonishing film, and <laughs> the we worked out that the script was basically. It's like it's it's beyond exposition, really, isn't it? Because it's like because with exposition, it's like people might explain what has happened or what is happening. In this, they explain what is going to happen. They say they somehow they get some sort of vision, which means nothing because it's so badly edited. And then they'll walk up to like a, a like a brick wall and say, "We need to put the flesh of a witch inside the handle of a knife in order to use it as a key to open the invisible door or something." And it's like, yeah. what? The Where thing did is, you get that from? There was no evidence of that being the solution. What, what makes it even more problematic is these visions that Rick Ewan's character, um, Edward Carnby, gets. We are party to at the start of the film. So when he gets, I think it's stabbed by this certain knife, this certain rubber knife that people keep on handling very close to the camera that reveals its, <laughs> its plastic origin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's he, he, We see what he sees. So he's, he, they say, oh, you, you know, the, the blade is cut you. What do you see? What do you see? And 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 basically, he may as well say, I don't know. It looks like Jack Lemon in a basement holding a poker, I, I in a cave or something. I, I don't know what that means. But then, so we see that and you're like, it's just some old bloke laughing in a cave. And then it cuts back to like him, and he's like, we need to travel north, 246 meters quickly at night time. We have to be there by dawn. And you're like, hang on, I just saw what you saw, and it was an old bloke yeah. in a cave giggling. So yeah, how did we, you extrapolate that? Yeah. It's, yeah. And it continually happens throughout the film. It, yeah, it's relentless. It's all like that, and it's really boring. Um, um, so it, it, it's not directed by Yui Ball this time, is it? No, it's so. directed by the writers, Michael Roche and Peter Shearer, of the first film. Um, mm. So two people to make it this bad. Jason Connery was in this film, and I, I really don't remember him. But as as, as you said just before we started the, started recording... It was bafflingly forgetful. It was really, really, uh, sorry, forgettable film. It was, uh, when it finished, I mean, you look at it now, you've got Ralph Moller, uh, Danny Trejo, Lance Henriksen. Lance Henriksen in this film. All he does is look out of windows and just talk bollocks. The total bollocks. And Danny Trejo, his death scene is him, He's he just slips and falls off camera, and that's it. You don't know what happened to him. <laughs> yeah. He seems to fall straight downwards. Yeah, like there's. You'd be trying to stand. They're, they're getting, they're getting attacked by this, uh, by this, this, this entity, and before it all really kicks off, he he properly just goes, and that's it, and you never see him again. 
<laughs> and the entity's terrible. It's just it's just a load of badly like realized computer graphics mist, isn't it? It's just a load of smoke. Yeah. So you haven't even got we talked about in the first film it was um bad CG. Um this is just smoke. So it's not even you get it would have been so much cheaper just to get a dude in a suit and, you know, yes. just cover him in Vaseline and say, look, there's the monster. That would have been better than a load of really... Because you're not even getting a monster a, a, or mm-hmm. bad CG monster. I look at you, Spawn from 1997. You're getting just smoke, so it's just not scary. Um, yeah, there, there are so many bits that I remember watching and thinking, I've got to remember this, but it, it's very hard to keep in your mind. Cause yes. I'm sure there's a bit where they're in a house and yeah, they, there's a they're, trying to hide, they're trying to hide from this, this evil like the darkness and and it, and it's it can teleport and travel anywhere it's killing everyone and mm. rick yoon and the, the girl in it hide from it by just ducking behind a wall and it just baffles the entity yep it's it, that's what it it's one of the cardinal sins of any horror slash monster movie is not especially supernatural movies is the filmmakers not making it clear what the rules are of the monster as in its capabilities and its limitations, you never get that. So any time it comes along, it's like, I don't know how threatening this thing is. We haven't had, uh, I mean, it's obviously killed people, but other times it's been really stupid. So I don't know how much threat there is in this scene. Yeah, and what it what it is and isn't capable of. Um, there's a whole sequence where Lance Henriksen is is supposed to be the, the the old wise man who you know knows the history of this entity. Don't stop it. And he talks extremely cryptically. And then it there's a sequence where it turns out he's hiding a load of relics and information from them that is discovered by them. But and it, the music ramps up as they're searching behind his back in his house. But when they find it, he he reacts like he's just forgotten about it. <laughs> uh, do you remember that he just sort of says, "Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, I forgot about this." And you think, well, there's no tension, and that scene no. didn't need to be in there, and it was constant. It was constantly that. And Rick Yoon, I'm tempted to watch another film with him in, just because I was at the start of the film. There was, an, I think his name is Zach Ward. He's in another film I've talked about in the podcast. I can't remember what it was called. It was a Canadian film about a load of people. I don't know if you remember it. They're in a they're in a cabin, and they notice there's no wildlife or insects, and they they keep disappearing whenever they're not being looked at. They disappear. And right. he he was the worst thing about that film. And when this film started, I thought he was Edward Carnby. He'd replay, and I thought, no, oh, God, don't like. Yes, exactly yeah, I remember the guy. Too. Yeah, and he, and, and actually, good... it would have made more sense because he's much closer to the look and age of Christian Slater. Christian Slater, but 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 he we gets... got something even worse. Yeah, when he left the film, I thought, oh, thank God. And then you see Michael Parry, and I thought, oh, maybe he's Edward Carnby. I like Michael Parry. He looks a bit like Treat Williams. I can get on with this for 90 minutes. Then he gets out of the film, and then you're left with Rick Yoon. And I don't know if what it was, but he is not an actor. Or at least when this film was made, it was he was very bad, noticeably bad. So, not a good um, one. No, not a good one. Um, but free on Prime... If you're really interested, um, Arkansas. Oh yes. Let's not. Let's. I'm just looking at my watch, and it hasn't been three months yet. So I don't. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to say. You asked me to get from Mila Jovovich to Basil Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> Basil Wallace, for those who might have missed the last um, podcast or can't remember, uh, is the main bad guy from uh, Steven Seagal's 1990 outing, marked for death. A very, very handsome man. 
Mila Jovovich is in Dazed and Confused with Matthew McConaughey, who's in Wolf of Wall Street with Leonardo DiCaprio, who's in Blood Diamond with Basil Wallace. Well, that was pretty quick. That was mm. pretty quick, yeah. I'm impressed with that. Um, I'll have to come up with a, with a tough one. Obviously, if anyone else thinks they can get there, how many steps was that? So that was one, two, three. Well, yeah, got there on the third step, yeah. So if anyone else feels like they can get from Miljovovic to Basil Wallace in less than three, fewer than three steps, mm-hmm. then um, uh, if you send an email to the men who talk at outlook.com and I'll embarrass Rupert for you. Um, so I'll, obviously I'll think of a new one as, as we, as we talk today. And do you want to, do you want to go first? I've got 10 films. It's been a bit of a, a bit of a weird yeah. one because I, I've, I've done a few, I've seen films on television um, I watched two of these films on television and it was really weird because I don't watch television. So to as see adverts... You were watching it on like... I stayed... Light, as it happened. I stayed in a hotel and I watched oh, yeah. uh, I watched Tomb Raider, the 2018 version of Tomb Raider, and I forgot that they cut things out and of all the adverts and stuff. So it was really weird and, I, and I'm looking forward to talking about that. But yeah, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine left. Uh, I don't know how many you've got, but I'm, I'm happy to take a back seat while you kick in. Um, I've got quite a few, although I'll, I'll shrink a few to two minutes. <laughs> there was a run there of about five or six films where they're just bad. Uh, yeah, I remember speaking to you at one point during last week and you said there was a there was a moment we were going to record this last week and, and I just couldn't. Yeah. And you said, I haven't watched a good film. And I, it was quite, it was quite remarkable actually. Yeah. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to that. I'll start with, um, I won't do them in order because then you'll know that the first six are bad. So I put them in a different order and the, I'll start with army of the dead on Netflix because this is quite a high profile release. I, I don't know why I, can't remember who said it to me, who, but I, I remember someone saying this is an amazing, like, reinvigoration of the zombie genre. And I thought, I'll have to watch that. But then when I saw the trailer and the picture of it on, I think it's Prime on Netflix, I thought, am I thinking about a different film? So I'm intrigued to what you're going to say about this. So this is from Zack Snyder, and he writes and directs, and he's even director of photography as well. Um... Snyder was, of course, responsible for the weirdly overrated Dawn of the Dead remake about, what, 15 years ago now? Um, But this is completely his gig. Um, So the the story is that zombies have swarmed Las Vegas, which has been turned into a giant compound, basically. And in four days, they're going to drop a nuclear bomb on it um, to wipe it out. So Dave Bautista plays an army dude hired by gangsters to go in and steal $200 million from a vault in there. He is haunted by the death of his wife um, and he's eager for revenge and blood. So he accepts. Um, There's another woman. There's this woman in the, the, in this kind of camp, right? There's a camp outside Vegas where basically uh, sort of like, disenfranchised people are you know they're almost like asylum seekers really and they're 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 stuck outside and so this woman needs money to get her family out so dave Bautista's character his daughter strong arms her way into her dad's squad to get money for this woman so they both got their own missions but they're 
kind of going together. There are other members of the squad, and they include this nervous German guy. I think he's German. There's this hard-ass female chopper pilot who apparently uh, our friend whose name I will cover up with the words sexual chocolate. He he says this woman who plays the chopper pilot is completely added in post. Someone else wow. was playing part. Wow. And I, to be fair, I didn't know this, so that's pretty impressive. Um, so uh, there's a streamer guy. There are a load of other interchangeable I mean, people. Added in post is in they re- they replaced the original footage yes. entirely. Was it? Is, do, we, do you know the reasons for that? I don't know. I'd have to watch it again um, to understand to see if she's in shot with other people because maybe they just like cut away every time she was on the screen i don't but know you, do we know the reason for for it i or? think the person who originally played that character was a bit of a sausage oh, quite right. a lot of a sausage i would imagine um <laughs> anyway there's i mean there's also garrett dillahunt who i haven't seen in a while and i love him um but he's a bit wasted really as this smarmy casino owner uh, um he's yeah he's kind of the Remember Mike uh, Paul Reiser's character from Aliens? He's like that. Um, there's there is quite an amusing sequence where they're going to get in the group together, and they go to each potential member of the team to hire them, and with each successive person, they just keep offering them them less and less money, basically, because they're obviously just going for the the best guys first, and then gradually it's like, ah, oh, do you want to get like five grand? So that was quite funny. So they they have to fight their way in on foot, um, get the loot, they get out. Um, Tonally, you could say it's sort of World War Z meets Dead Rising or something. Um, In terms of twists on the formula, there is this thing about when it rains, then dead zombies come back to life. But it's mentioned, but it never actually happens. So there are also these more sentient zombies who have this created this kind of social hierarchy and they've got this bunch of rituals um so in that way there's elements of escape from new york in the way that it's a walled off city with its own subcultures and stuff but it doesn't have any of the same midnight atmosphere or brutal efficiency of that film and indeed now is the time to mention that it's 2.5 hours long. Two and a half hours long. Bloody hell. Mm. And yet, a... the, yet the pacing still feels too swift because of the sheer number of like plot threads and character threads. It, it could do without a lot of the subplots. A lot of the damsel in distress stuff. Just focus on the heist. It would have been more fun. But then here's where we come to quite a crucial problem with um a zombie heist movie because the appeal of a heist movie right as far as i'm concerned is it's all about the planning it's about outwitting it's about adapting but zombie movies are basically the opposite of these things really especially the kind of planning outwitting and that and that so there isn't really even a, a satirical layer to speak of um like you get this politics sort of alluded to in the camp outside the compound but but none of it makes any sense, really, because the whole idea of if the zombies are safely contained within Las Vegas, why is there this mad rush to drop a bomb on it? 
and kill all the people around it sort of thing everyone could just be evacuated if they're all successfully walled off so yeah yeah there's no threat really so that it doesn't make any sense also and i don't care about spoiling it because it's not really that much of a spoiler but it's revealed right The, the gangsters who want them to go in there to steal this money right um they reveal that actually they didn't want them to go and steal money they wanted them to go and steal a zombie head so they could build an army right they want to get a zombie head from one of these special zombies, right? Okay, well, for a start, why not just tell them that and say, we'll pay you 200 million or whatever for a zombie head, go and get one. Why make them go through the whole process of getting into this vault and risking them even more? Anyway, mm-hmm. but not only that, the second, the second they walk into that into Las Vegas, they bump into one of these special zombies. And so they could... You know, if they just said, right, go and get us a head and they walk in there, they could get ahead of one of these special zombies. They would have been out within seconds. But no, it's it doesn't make any sense. The whole premise doesn't make any sense. Um, This being Snyder, naturally, you get just like in Dawn of the Dead, you get a really unpleasant zombie pregnancy thing going on um, Mm. where. This time, a zombie sticks his hand into someone, a pregnant woman's guts and yanks out the fetus. Mm. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've got so many notes here, but I'm getting bored just even talking about it. It's kind <sighs> of, it's very video gaming in the way that the different zombies have different skills and behaviours. You've got, like, hibernating ones and they have to sneak past. And and overall, the, the whole plot feels just like a bunch of, like, cool ideas strung together without much of a coherent story which is a video game basically um loads of cg loads of green screen and loads and loads of bits from aliens like i mentioned garrett dillhunt's character who is literally burke from aliens someone in this film actually says you don't see them screwing each other over as in talking about the zombies exactly the line from aliens um you've got there are more than one the multiple um vasquez suicide moments where someone will blow themselves up in order to save the others um and then and you've got this bit at the end where they come out onto the roof to get the helicopter but they think the chopper's left and then it comes back to get them sort of thing it's just relentless and and i don't think that Zack snyder has any real knack for horror and I felt that kind of with Dawn of the Dead as well. But here, like, because at the end of the day, his any tension that he produces is purely in anticipation of what he's really interested in, which is just sustained, very stylish fighting and shooting, which he does OK. But um, Dave Bautista is no fun at all. He's just a mopey guy dragged down by guilt. And he's just constantly having arguments with his miserable daughter and in the end, it's it's one of those films. I won't mention which character, but essentially it's one of those films where we as an audience are expected to rest all our sympathy on one character, even though that one character is personally responsible for virtually every death and everything that goes wrong in the movie. So it's like you're meant to feel that this is where your, your sympathy lies. And yet you think back to everything that person's done and it's like, right. I, I, I'm not. I'm not feeling what you want me to feel here. Uh, yeah, it's. Um, 
it's a hodgepodge of ideas and characters from better movies focused on a really dull central relationship and it goes on forever i would you reminded me i mean i mean i may watch this film i do like dave bautista and and i know he can be good in films i know he can be a certain type of character but in the last few films i've seen him in he has been utterly wasted i think in big budget movies usually he's sort of used to effect like in say guardians of the galaxy or whatever you know yes. pop him in boom 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 but when what was that film i saw him? he was in oh i can't remember oh it was escape plan three and it was right. like he was bored i mean the best part of that film was a fist fight he had with another character but for the rest of it 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 was just he was just saying lines and i thought you you need he needs yeah. to really turn up to to make an impact yes i um i i've watched another baptista film and i have more to say about him so i'll wait until then because yeah. i mean this film i mean, army of the dead i mean he's just one in an ensemble really no one's really memorable it's just not a very good film. When you said that there was, they hinted at politics when they're outside the camp before they go in, yeah. is it a scene where someone walks over to a group of people and they say, what are you playing? And someone says, top trumps. And then they say, did you buy those pogs you were looking at on Amazon? And he replies, no, I was biding my time. No. Oh. I'll edit that out. <laughs> but yeah, but, um, yeah do you even dream of it? <laughs> you bloody dream about removing that gold. Um, yeah, with with Zack Snyder, I have, I have a weird relationship with him because I I remember really liking Watchmen at the time, but it was just when I was hip steep into into the graphic novel and yeah. uh, and thinking, oh, this is actually really it was really reflective of the medium it came from. And I thought well, yes. that doesn't usually happen. So I really enjoyed that. Admittedly, I don't think I've seen it since 300. It's, it's, it's pretty good. Like, I, 300. I, I remember finding sort of silly fun, but everything else, I mean, to be honest, my mind is taken up by this Snyder cut of the, uh, what films again? Not the Avengers, the other one, the DC. Is it Batman vs Superman? Um, and I'm thinking, should I watch or that? Or is it Justice League? I can't remember. Justice League, Justice League. Thinking, should I watch that? Because I do like Batman. Um, but I I don't know. His career is... <sighs> a... there's, there's so much more that needs to be done with that film to fix it, though. That's a problem. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I, I think Watchmen's the only film of his I've seen which I've enjoyed. I think that's because the material fits his worldview. It's the only one which has really fit his worldview. When you think about... I suppose 300 to an extent, but you think about like super, his Superman films, it's just not him. He's, he's too grimdark. He's too cynical. He's too in love with brutality. And it worked in Watchmen because in that you've, you've got exactly the combination he wants, which is like really cynical humor and ultra violence. And it mm. works. Cause so he could, you know, he could, and, and of course loads of st stylish action, but I just nothing else has really worked for me by him. By the way, the the video game uh, Watchmen released on I think it's on PS3 at the time got pretty middling to slate reviews. You got a bottle of wine in front of you and a mate, totally fine, totally worth a couple of hours of just punching, and it, you will be punching. It is button bashy. <laughs> With regards to this, it just seems like a weird film to make at this point in his career, to be honest. Well, Army of the a, Dead. Yeah. It, hmm. 
I guess it must be some sort of passion project for him, given that he's so involved in every part of it. But it's, as with many a passion project, it feels like a hugely expensive fan film, really. Like, you know, like when you're a kid, you think, oh, it'd be so cool to like make a movie like this. You know, this would be the movie I'd make. And it's like, and then you put it together and it's like, ah, oh, right, it's just like, Frankenstein's monster of other people's ideas strung together. What was that badly. film? What was that film you watched? As you were talking and you mentioned it was just a string of set pieces, and we've talked about this before, people pulling scripts out of really curled yellowed scripts out of drawers from their teenager and making a list of oh that that would be cool sequences. And it was the film you mentioned it in was the one with Salma Hayek. And oh, it, um Eve? Eve? And it, we talked about it then a few months ago where it was just, yeah. you know, oh, that would be cool. And then when you watch it, you think, yeah. oh, like talking about it's... it is cool off the cuff, but like putting it on film is actually really tedious. And teenage is the word that pops up for me. Yes. For that. Um, right. Oh, sorry. Uh, so move yeah, on. Yes. M- moving on to Naked Gun Two and a Half, The Smell of Fear. <laughs> which so the, My history with the Naked Gun series is, is really odd because... <sighs> Again, going back to my video store days, I watched Leslie Nielsen and stuff like Dracula Dead and Loving It and that Die Hard rip off Spy Hard, stuff like that. Yeah. And it was all stuff, again, perfect, PG or rated 12. I could check on so I didn't have to turn it off when kids came in. And I, I would sort of watch half of it. And I had a friend when I was very young, like early teens, that would religiously, when we were over his house and when we went to bed, he couldn't sleep without putting a film on. But I fall asleep really quickly in the evening. So he would always put on one of the Naked Gun films. More recently, your brother has, um, yeah. has, has put up pictures in various WhatsApp groups about Police Squad, which I've never mm-hmm. seen. And every single thing he puts up really, really tickles me, especially when it's wordplay, which I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, you know, I'm going to watch a Naked Gun film like, alone. And, <laughs> and obviously the only one on Prime is the second one, which Naturally. from my brief research is a lazy rehash of the far better first one. So I thought, well, <laughs> sign me up, guys. So, uh, yeah, it, it's just a bit of a, t- a two-minute trash, and really. I, I watch this in the story. It, the story is just total nonsense. Yeah. It, it, it's a uh, 1988 sequel uh, to the original, which was actually... Oh, 1991, I was going to say, that seems early. 1981 sequel to the original from 1988, starring Leslie Nielsen, and it is Leslie Nielsen reconnecting with his ex, Priscilla Presley, as he tries to keep Richard Griffiths alive because he is a professor that wants to warn the world of environmental uh, disasters against, you know, uh, pushing against nuclear energy and, and uh, fossil fuels. Mm. And it's a series of assassination attempts to, to kill him. Um, I, I just want to cut to the comedy really, because I, I do historically on this podcast, I say like, I struggle with comedies and this will come up again when I talk about the boss uh, later on, is I struggle with comedies because I find that when I watch a horror film or, or an action film, I have much more patience to a low hit rate uh, of, yeah. of action. Or, or but when I'm watching a comedy and I'm not laughing, it mm. feels like there's nothing else there to interest me. And bad comedies, you you can't get that sort of so so bad it's enjoyable from an action no. film or like a shitty horror. It's just bad and it and and worse at the absolute worst crimes. It's cringeworthy. So I. I kind of like this because what tickled me the most isn't the sort of slapstick stuff. It was I always thought Leslie Nielsen would was in my head 
was a bit of a one-trick pony, right? In mm. terms of, in terms of, he would do something totally ridiculous and keep straight-faced about it. But yep. that's actually not true. It's actually, I found it much more weirdly nuanced than that because what I found was I was, it was, it was almost like whatever he did in this movie, however ridiculous, I was kind of entranced by his face because. I realized he would actually do like slightly different things that kept it interesting throughout. So for example, he would do something that was totally like he would be, I don't know, say tearing a lobster claw off and it would fall down a woman's blouse and she would look at him and he would look away and pretend it didn't happen. But then in the same sequence, for example, he would flick, I don't know, for an example, like a pickled egg across the room and it would hit someone in the face and land in their mouth and they'd look at him and he would pull a face like, Oh, I didn't expect that to happen. And it was, and I, and, and it might sound silly, but these, his, it's almost like he's locked in his own private capsule and he's just observing what's yes. going around him and he's not part of it. Like the things that happen aren't, aren't his fault. And I really enjoyed the slightly different reactions. It was much more nuanced yeah. than I thought it was, which we're just, he just keeps a straight face sort of thing, but he's actually like interested in the ridiculousness. Um, in a I, way, that's the, sort of the appeal of any great comic performance i suppose is that sense of being locked that person being locked in a sort of almost an alternate universe really isn't it yeah yeah they're just doing their thing and they've got no sense of obviously they're kind of playing up for the camera i I think jim carrey does it really well as well like he's on such a different level to anyone else around him uh it's just quite entrancing yeah and I, and I I found that I mean the the more silly slapstick stuff like there's a bit where he's trying and again this will sound funnier when I say it than it is to watch it he is in the middle of a a speech he pulls out Richard Harris's ass and he tries to sand off a tattoo to prove he's someone else but it's too it's too silly it's just the joke yes. is that you know a man has his ass out but it, it I, I was much more interested in just looking at Leslie Nielsen's face as things happened and I think if the first and third he is on par i think i will get just as much enjoyment out of them because i didn't care about the plot mm. and and the cameos oh, yeah. and whatever so and... forgettable it's just to do with the set pieces oh yeah my, i've watched all three films quite a lot and i the first and second one are very good the third one really is a bit ropey Mm. Sadly, is is the second one the one where the guy creeps into the woman's apartment while she's having a shower Yes, and they start singing. And yeah, and she's it doesn't is it Leslie Nelson throws like a towel at him and like <laughs> and like it strikes him in the face and it, it's it's as if he's thrown acid in his face. And yeah, it's just like a soft like hand r- wrestling out of his face. That oh, that scene tickled yeah. me because um uh, yeah, the, he breaks into a room and she's let Priscilla Presley chowing, she's singing, and the guy's like pu- putting a silencer on his gun. And then, and you can tell he's like so moved by her singing that he, you can see his like lip quivering and he starts sweating. And then he just joins in with a baritone to a falsetto. And then Sheila enjoys it. And then it's like, hang on, there's someone just singing. And she opens the door and sees him. And his eyes kind of widen like, shit, she's seen me, but he's still singing. Like he's so into it. Yeah. And again, things like that are kind of funny. Yeah. It's, it's uh, the more slapsticky, silly, nudity, flashy stuff that's like, oh, okay, this is boring. Yeah. But there is more nuance to. Yeah, and definitely, I, I'm tempted to watch a few more Leslie Nielsen films because I didn't realize I thought he was very much a one-trick pony, and to an extent, I suppose that's true about most comic performers. But it, yeah. it, it's kind of like, and I've said this before, with when you watch an episode of Bottom, you can watch one episode looking purely at Rick Mill and another episode looking at Adrian Edmondson, and you will still enjoy yeah. it yeah. equally. Yes, I agree. Yeah, you should definitely watch the first one. 
I'll watch all of them, and I'll watch Police Squad as well. You see if I don't. <laughs> and then you go back to Airplane. <laughs> well, the best one? Is that the best one? Um, I personally prefer the Naked Gun films, but um, and Airplane isn't really focused on Leslie Nielsen, but he is brilliant in them. Um, right. I, I, should I do a quick two-minute? Please do. Um, I'll just quickly talk about Eight Mile, uh, which is on Netflix currently. Uh, this is a film that Curtis Hansen, the late Curtis Hansen, directed in 2002 as a star vehicle for Eminem, basically. Eight Mile refers to this road leading to a trailer park in Detroit, and that's where Eminem lives with his single mum, played by Kim Basinger. He is a blue-collar factory worker, um, and he spends his spare time doing rap battles at the local club and fighting with his mum's boyfriend, played by Michael Shannon, looking weirdly young. Um, (laughs) Which you've got a problem with. Uh, the thing is, Kim Basinger and Michael Shannon do kind of show up Eminem's limitations as an actor. I mean, he's okay, but his range is very limited and he looks pretty blank most of the time. The basic plot is pretty standard. He's got a shitty existence and he's trying to find his way out. Um, it's basically a, like a like a gangster movie, really, but with words instead of guns, really. I, I quite like how they represent... Eminem working on his stuff because you get this familiar backing track which you've heard before and it would just come in with these snatches of vocal as they seem to come into his head so that was pretty cool um but otherwise it's all very standard and it's all building up to this final rap battle which is okay but a little bit underwhelming because you don't really get I mean, so much about the film is about living up to expectations, right? So you've got all his friends going on about how amazing he is, how talented he is and all this. But you don't really get any kind of a glimpse of that genius at all until the end. So it's like, he just seems like someone who's just moping around feeling sorry for himself a lot of the time, to be honest. Like if we'd, I I wanted to glimpse some of the untapped potential sort of thing, but we don't really get it. Um, So... It's all pretty predictable and a bit cheesy in the end. And if you're going to watch like a uh, kind of street level rap movie, then watch Patty Cakes instead, is my advice. So not the most glowing of reviews. This was quite a lauded film at the time, wasn't it? I I think so. I haven't really looked into why. I mean, I don't suppose people were amazed blown away by eminem's acting talent because that's not there uh i mean obviously he's a very talented rapper but it just in terms of like it's sort of narrative it's very it's, it's, we've seen it all before i i suppose it's a bit different because it's not rags to riches it's like rags to dignity but <laughs> i don't know it, but um i don't know i just thought it was just pretty predictable the next film was one that was i don't know if you've seen this it was suggested to us to, to review by a man we will have to refer to by a pseudonym as our contract states so we'll refer to him as alfredo testicle powderer and this was saint maud have you seen this? Oh, I haven't seen this yet. You haven't seen this one. Okay, then I'll keep this. I, the twenty-year rule, by the way, for spoilers is whew, that is not that is not held up by some members of the podcast, is it, Rupert? Let's say who. Let's just say his name doesn't begin with B and end with John Ritter. 
it's someone else. Every time I think about that man, by the way, I'm just sad that he's dead. Um, mm. So because he was in Real Men with James Belushi. Uh, so this is a, this is a British psychological horror film uh, directed by Rose Glass, and it's her first movie. And I know that Mark Kermo, this was his favorite film of 2020. And I remember mm. I, I, when I I have I don't listen to many podcasts anymore. But when I because I've got this one, I just listen to this and repeat, obviously. Um, but when I when I I remember thinking after watch like it's a horror that's you know highly praised, and it just completely dropped off my radar. And so when Alfredo Testicle Powder suggested, it, I thought, well, I'll have to I'll have to dive in and watch this. Um, the movie I, I almost turned this off by the way after like 10 15 minutes because I'm a I'm a I'm a recent father I and, and as you know as, as as documented on this podcast I really struggle with sad films and I struggle with um uh, people with terminal illnesses I just I get very uncomfortable around it anyway and this mm-hmm. film is entirely based around a young woman a young uh, devout uh religious woman looking after someone because she's a, a care that specializes in, in palliative care so i thought mm. oh, i'm watching a woman die of cancer and i oh i don't know if i'm gonna watch this but i was intrigued enough to, to to sort of stick with it and the film is about much more than that and i'm glad i did so morvith clark speaking with a wonderfully welsh accent uh plays uh, a, a young nurse called maud who has left the hospital she used to work at for unstated circumstances and looks after a, a retired dancer who's in, in the advanced stages of cancer uh, called Amanda and the film presents itself as, as a clash of ideals you've got Maud's very quiet uh, deeply religious approach and Amanda's hedonistic lifestyle pushing against it mm. and you've got Maud trying to trying to sort of save her soul whereas Amanda is is saying Look, there's nothing you've got to enjoy it while you're here I'm just going to party until the end both pretty valid um it it, it turns slowly into the fact that the film basically walks the line of is is what's happening real is the are these visions that Maud has and and the are her is her purpose altruistic or is there a bit more going on? Mm. And, and so I'm not going to say any more than that. Um, I will say that the film has got a real seventies vibe. And I think it's because Morvid Clark, who plays Maud, it has got that sissy SpaceX look going on, that kind of long, long hair, the sort of slightly hunched pose, the the sort of wide eyed uh, innocence, very pale. And, even through it, 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 the clothes she wears, the, the, it's it's she's very, she seems a very timeless character, w- which works for the film. And it, it's a very, it's a weird film in that I I found that I got more from it the more time that passes since I viewed it because at the time I was so unsure of the direction the film would go in that I think mm. it, it almost stunted my appreciation of what I was watching. I was right. sort of trying to sort of second guess the direction of it. But afterwards, I felt like I really drank it in. Uh, right. and, and I'm sort of reflecting on it. And I've had some conversations with Faye about it because she thoroughly enjoyed it as well. Um, so it's, I don't want to say too much. I, I like these sort of films like, uh, you know, the, the Block Island Sound, which I'm assuming you also haven't seen. I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> even, even no. um, but uh, what I will say is, uh, and I'm a big fan of this in 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 the horror genre, 
it has probably got my that I sometimes struggle with films and video games that where and I look at you, um, I've forgotten his name now. What's his name? The the, the director of uh, Eraserhead, David David Lynch. David Lynch. Where it's oh, you know, what do you think it means? I love, I love how definite the end of this film is. I and, uh-huh. and literally, literally, it is a two second scene, and I absolutely loved it because it says, "There you go," and you think, "Brilliant, brilliant, good. yeah, absolutely brilliant." You you've stuck with your guns. Um, it's a really, really, really good film. And I think, mm. I think I'm going to watch it again, and I think I'll get much more out of the the quiet, drained, saturated cinematography and the quietness of the performances than I will the first time. I, I and I will say that when the film started, I thought the Morvith Clark, I thought she had almost a blankness to her, but mm-hmm. I realized as the film went on, it was really, really subtly more uh, an unreadability. Right. And I, than a blankness, which, which I thought was a really, really clever thing to pull off. It's good acting, there. It also features. <laughs> I know, I know, this is something you sometimes cross your arms at, but um, mm-hmm. there are not many likable characters in this movie, Rupert. Mm-hmm. And and I will highlight before I before I end it, and this isn't a spoiler at all. I hate littering. Always hated littering. And there's a scene in this film where um, uh, Morvith Clark is talking to, to another carer. And the other kid is totally fine. She's a really polite, like, lovely young nurse. And she's eating a sandwich as they talk. And at the end of the conversation, uh, the woman just really casually just rolls up the foil and just chucks it on the floor. And you don't, mm. it happens off screen. You just hear the foil at the floor and it cuts them over the clock. And she actively winces as it hits the floor. Like, <laughs> oh, you're one of those, are you? And like, I absolutely, I was with her. I hate Lydia. Yeah. So um, she became the most likable character at that point. You're not far off, actually. Um, yeah. So yeah, Saint Maud. I can I can see why people love this film, and like it is very rewatchable. And I and I think that um, the more you watch it, I can imagine people would get a lot more from it. This is a film I can imagine that I can imagine people could study it in university and write a, a dissertation on it. Good, good, good. Is it a horror? Would you say, or is it more of a thriller? Oh, it's very so, much a, a very much a horror. Oh, very much. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. That's what I like to hear. Um, where is that available? That is on Amazon Prime. I say that. I said that with such lack of conviction. It is <sighs> on. It's on Amazon Prime, yeah, because Alfredo yeah. Testicle Powder. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. Right. Okay. Well, also on Amazon Prime is My Spy. Uh, this is the second Dave Bautista film. Really? So... Oh. Hang on, is this one of those films where you place, the cover is like a, a little girl with her hands crossed on his head and they're frowning? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Why are you watching me? Um, I'm sure there was a reason at the time. Um, so, Bautista plays a, a, a spy who messes up an operation. So he's put on stakeout duty. He's watching the home of a woman and her nine-year-old um, daughter, who's got no friends um to get to the bad guy anyway um obviously bautista and the woman and the girl end up entwined in each other's lives and this unlikely friendship emerges between bautista and the little girl um basically the little girl discovers that bautista and his partner are on a mission 
and he she blackmails Bautista into being her friend because she hasn't got any friends. And of course, if he doesn't, then she'll reveal the secret to her mum. It's a pretty thin premise, to be honest, but it does a job. So the plot is quite similar to Stakeout, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, with Bautista, he ends up dating the woman he's meant to be surveying. So, except here it's a bit different because he's being blackmailed by the kid and he is being held to account by his colleagues. So it does avoid Stakeout's very creepy sexual politics. Um, the director is someone called Peter Seagal, who is known for classic comedies like Nutty Professor 2, The Clumps, um, Angerman's Get Smart. Um, so obviously the violence is very neutered. Um, the main bad guy, by the way, is is Greg Brick, who is the cult leader from Far Cry 5, which was I was quite excited about because he's he's quite a creepy guy, but he doesn't get much screen time. So Bautista is doing his stoic, emotionless thing. He is... He bounces off Kristen Schaal. I don't know. I've not seen her before. I guess she's probably a comedian. Uh, she's sort of his colleague and also a massive fan of his. And she's just an unfunny klutz, really. The problem is with Bautista, as we've alluded to before, he's... He's amusingly deadpan at times because obviously in Guardians of the Galaxy, that was his whole thing was being deadpan. Um, But the problem is he doesn't have the comic subtlety to portray someone who is, in this case, duplicitous, especially on multiple levels. So, for example, like there are scenes here where which could have been funny, where he's trying to conceal his identity um, from the woman he's surveying, but they just land flat because he doesn't quite have the, he doesn't have that comic nuance that you need for mm. that sort of thing. I mean, most of the comedy, to be fair, it's, it's of the very much the Paul Feig variety. So it's a lot of pop reference references mixed with mild gross out and. Oh, it's irritating and, and crap and lazy. Right. I'm with you. <laughs> and of course you get the really tiresome jokes where people will, bluntly describe what's happening in front of their eyes as a means of humor now of course Paul Feig did make Spy which was not great but it was better than this um so don't expect anything even of that quality there is one funny scene I've one funny scene that's right where Bautista he he has dinner with the the mum and child and he tells this really inappropriate story about eating lizards and drinking urine in Afghanistan. That was quite funny. But moment to moment, it's just not a funny script. Um, and the plot is just, uh, it's just exists to move the set pieces along. I mean, I mean, we could say the same about naked gun films, obviously, but the difference is they're funny and they have a very talented comic actor at the center. So you don't mind watching Leslie Nielsen the whole time, but no. Bautista just doesn't, he, he's just not he he cannot carry a comic film on his own really i i would say um the, the relationship between bautista and the kid is kind of sweet they do have nice chemistry and i quite like the music it was kind of whimsical and orchestral in a quite an old-fashioned 90s way that was nice but it just doesn't like the script is so bad and the final confrontation is totally dumb doesn't make any sense on multiple levels um but by that point you don't really care anyway apparently they're 
considering a sequel for this, which I won't be watching. It's just lazy. Lazy is the word. It just seems so. This it just seems so built by. It, it feels like it's built by a machine. You know, like if you're gonna let a bunch of AIs make a comedy, they would come up with this premise. They would shoot the film in this way. They would write the film in this way. The actors would perform it in this way. It just seems utterly robotic. I'm not going to watch that, Rupert. Oh, I know. <laughs> the whole thing about any, any. I mean, this goes back to bloody Mister Nanny. Any muscle man looking after a child, there's a recipe for disaster. I look, I look at you, fatherhood. <laughs> just, it just. <laughs> Not that Ted Danson's a muscle man. In fact, in that film, he's got like a like a bouffantish crew cut with a with a tiny ponytail, so he's really not a threat. But no, I, there's there's something about the whole. Um, it's just a fish out of water thing, isn't it? It I, it doesn't appeal to me at all. I'm not gonna. Yeah. I'm not gonna watch that. No, no. Yeah, what, I not what I did watch was Runaway from 1984, starring Tom Selleck and Cynthia Rhodes, a Flashdance fame. Also, Gene Simmons from Kiss and Kirsten Alley. And another man who I'm going to add to my list of men who could seduce me at a bar, and that is Stan Shaw. Do you know who he is? Yeah, you you know who Stan Shaw is. He was in Daylight. He's the one who sacrificed himself in Daylight. There's something about him. It's a really friendly face, and he's just a... Let me look him up. Look at Stan Shaw. What a picture they got of him. What picture have they got on... uh, Wikipedia. Nothing. Nothing. Oh, they've got a picture of him. Wow, six he's younger than I thought, actually. <laughs> Anything? Look at Stan Shaw. Tell me that you love him. <laughs> have to. Lo- we can only love men that we both love. Oh, I know him. Yeah. yeah. That's surprising. He has got pictures in loads of stuff, isn't he? Mm, yeah. It's like that guy. Um. So yeah, well, they can't get Keith David in. They're like, what's that up to? <laughs> um, so yeah, Runaway. It's an, a film from 1984, and it's a science fiction action film written and directed by Michael Crichton of Jurassic Park fame. Yes. So <clears throat> I don't think I've seen a film directed by Michael Crichton. Um, the film. It, I want to. I want to talk about um, certain aspects of this film more than more than the, the plot. So I'll just briefly go through the plot so people know we stand. Tom Selleck is part of the Runaway division. It's set in the future. Um, it's it's uh, made in 1984, but it's set in the early 90s. And Tom Selleck is part of this runaway division. And so the, the world has become, or at least America, has become very robotized and automated. And he the, he exists in a division of the police that hunt down what they call runaways, which is any kind of malfunctioning um, computer system or robot, whether it be a, you know something that does cleaning in someone's home or it's in an office or in a construction site. The, you know, mm. Anything goes wrong, it malfunctions, they call him, he goes in and stops it. And Cynthia Rhodes plays his hot new partner. And it's a weirdly tame film, but what really struck me about this is this is 1984 and the film is oddly prescient about things that will come into action in the future. I, I was watching the film sort of thinking it would be like silly 80s fun with Tom Selleck, you know, just off the cast of what was that not hawaii fiver what was it it was a magnum pi and i actually thought i, I started sort of mentally listing things like ah oh, that that actually that is right that is what happened and i mm. was noticing things like drones the automation of a human workforce 
uh, things like that. But when I went online, people say no, it's it's like really weirdly prescient. Things like the the type of gun the police would use, moving from revolvers to you know the Berettas mm. kind of things, things like yeah. that. Like a lot, lots of little things. It is very dated, in that Tom's Celex put this runaway division, like a real hot shot when it comes to um, electronics and. Uh, automation and yet it's very clear because of obviously the budget when you when he, he gets for instance he gets called to a farm and they say yeah one of the one of the sort of corn collecting robots is just going bonkers and it's it's sort of up to your shin and just looks like a vacuum cleaner and you think you could have just you either could just shoot it which is what tom Selleck does to everything in some respect in this film just to just shoot it and the thing would break or what if you're if this is so far into the future and america is so reliant on automated robots why isn't there just a shutdown switch to just turn off if it goes wrong um mm. and th there's a scene where it goes to there's a, a robot in a house and it looks like something from that what was it that thing that C robot wars with craig charles it's just like looks like it just looks like a wedge with like a hand on the top that's a pincer, you know, like a one of those things, like a litter picker. And they say, yeah, it's killed an entire family. And there's this ridiculously tense scene where he's saying, oh, "I'm gonna have to go in there and stop it." And he's got this basically a phaser gun, and he puts on a bloody quasar like suit and goes in there, and he's doing these forward rolls around, and this thing oh is firing a magnet in it, and it just think, "Oh God, this is a bit awkward," but. It, <laughs> It's that thing about like um, technology of the future, and and it was really watchable and oddly charming. That there is something very charming about watching old films imagine the future. Yeah, well, this is literally... especially when we're now past that future. Oh yeah, by, by over thirty years. But they, honestly, there's a bit where they say we're going to work out what's going on, and they send in drones to it, and it's like, oh, fair play. That is, that literally what happens now. Mm -hmm. Oh, you've just reminded me of another film I'm going to talk about as well. Um, but yeah, so that was all well and good. Gene Simmons. Luckily, right, this film is enjoyable because of Tom Selleck's sort of really genial performance and the fact that it's pretty light-hearted. Um, I was surprised when people dropped the F-bomb because I thought that really does need to be in this film. I don't know what rating it is, but it really could be a PG movie. Because, of course, all, all the, the main people, the, the things that get attacked are robots. There's no blood or anything. Um, mm. Gene Simmons is the main mm. bad guy. And I've only seen Gene Simmons in, in another film, and that is 1986's, possibly 87's, Wanted Dead or Alive, starring Rutger Hauer, where he plays an Arab terrorist, which was, quite frankly, a brilliant, brilliant film. Not as you good as... clearly haven't seen Trick or Treat from 1986, <laughs> where where he plays like a demonic rocker who comes to life when someone plays uh, a vinyl backwards. <sighs> Brilliant! I will have to watch that now, obviously. Um, but I weirdly, if you go on IMDb for this Runaway 1984, mm. a lot of the trivia is obsessed with uh, Gene Simmons' performance, like it was mm. really, it was really electrifying and really nuanced mm -hmm. it's okay. not he literally either whenever he's on screen either just stares blankly at things or narrows his eyes that is it and there's there's a, a scene in this as well where he <laughs> orders the quickest coffee i've ever seen he he walks up tom Selleck's character says we need to go in there and you know because he's the bad guy he's got these bullets that home in on people and he's killing certain people according to the heat signatures blah blah blah, blah. He Tom Selleck walks off the shot. The shot stays on this coffee shop. 
and Gene Simmons walks in and he says black. And as he's finished saying the word black, the woman is putting the coffee in his hand and a coffee he, he doesn't pay for and turns around and squints at Tom Selleck as he walks into a hotel. Um, so, yeah, it's it's good fun. And if you're if you're a fan of technology, it, it, like I said, it's weirdly um, forward thinking in, the, in, in, in what it brings up and what it covers. But yeah. it is it's at its heart. It's silly, cheesy fun. Especially the ending sequence on a building site where people are flummoxed by these really cheap waddling spider robots with needles mm-hmm. in their pincer and Tom Selleck's fear of heights. Uh, fantastic. He's got a fear of heights. He's on this building site and he purposefully crawls to the edge of the building to look down at the floor to spin himself out. <laughs> he he literally... All he had to do was not do that, and the ending sequence would have been far shorter. But yeah, no. Is he that, good? Is Tom Selleck good? You just want to give mug. There's a moment in it where they <laughs> someone says that he's 35, and I thought, is he though? Is he 35? <laughs> and I, and I looked at it, the age he would have been, and he would have been 39. But the lines on his forehead, you could get four scale electrics cars in there easily and have a good match. <laughs> so, but yeah, I guess it's just the the California sun. But yeah, in run away. Way- yeah, it, it, I I was gonna say in a way like Michael Crichton is, is pretty much that's his thing really, isn't it? Like he will come up with these pretty incredible and quite prescient like sci-fi ideas and put them in these really hokey and enjoyable, um, well books or screenplays really, because of course he made Westworld back in the seventy-three, was it? 73? Yeah, and he also made um. A film I enjoyed with Albert Finney called Looker from the early 80s. Um, and that very much focused on like the cosmetic surgery industry, on the um, modeling and, and television commercials, all of the stuff really that was, you know, emergent at the time. And that was really enjoyable. Albert Finney and James Coburn. I, I, I don't. I don't. I think this may have been the last one that Michael Crichton directed. But yeah, I was. I'm. I'm kind of on board to to watch him more. I kind of wish he'd done more because mm. it's they're fun. They're you know. It's fun well, because he wrote Jurassic Park as well. So there you go. Um, what's next? What's next in this journey that we call life? Um, what channel was that on? By the way, channel. <laughs> It was on Granada Television. <laughs> no, it was it was on S4C. No, it was. Uh, we couldn't get Channel Five in the valleys, by the way, the South Wales valleys back in the day. We dreamed of Channel Five. So we had our television one. did not have five buttons on it. <laughs> Why didn't you sew four. one on? <laughs> what was the film? I think we had to like if you wanted. I think once we Amazon re-tuned. Prime. It was on Amazon Prime. We retuned one of the channels, existing channels, to check out Channel 5, and then we realised it's rubbish and just tuned it back. Um, it's so, your tracking, mate. It's your tracking. It's your tracking. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about Brightburn, which is on Netflix. Have you seen this? Oh, and I'm thinking of the um, Joel Edgerton, Will Smith film, which was Bright, isn't it? Yes. Isn't this a superhero film? Sort of. It's, um, it's sort of a mashup of horror and superhero um tropes really um it's made in 2019 yeah, and it was written by james gunn and mark gunn um basically this young farming couple want a baby and then one 
literally crash lands in their yard, so they adopt him. Obviously, he looks like a human. Um, uh, but as he enters puberty, this kid, he discovers he has superpowers, uh, speed, strength, and vulnerability. He can fly. Um, and he's hearing voices from the shed, which may or may not be where the parents decided to stash his um, spacecraft. Um, he's hearing voices from the shed where his dad <laughs> keeps his magazines and the voices are saying, huh, huh. um so basically so he's got these superpowers he this kid his name's brendan he he fancies a girl at school brendan gleason Gleason. yeah it's a weird bit of casting um (laughs) but um he fancies this girl but she rejects him and this triggers his descent into a very extreme form of toxic masculinity and he sort of starts using his powers for nefarious ends. Um, so it's kind of a dark universe version of Spider-Man, of oh, Spider-Man, Superman. And, and you have that premise and it is a pretty strong, well, solid premise anyway, but then it plays out exactly as you would imagine. Scene for scene. That is disappointing because I was just, I was just taking a sip of my drink there. And, and I thought that is a premise that is obviously mirrors Superman and it is ripe, ripe Mm -hmm. for a beautiful satire, but it it doesn't go that way. Does it? No, it it like beat for beat within every predictable scene is exactly as you'd imagine it to play out. And I don't know whether this could be, um, it may be, I suppose it's to do with the script, really. But it, it, the part of it is debutante director syndrome, I think. Uh, I can't even remember who the director is, but it's the first time, uh, first film for them. Or possibly it's a kind of film by committee syndrome. Because any film that looks and sounds and feels exactly as you would expect seems to me to be compromised. It feels more like a product than a vision, really. Um, I on the plus side, Elizabeth Banks as a mum is very good. Her husband is played by someone called David Denham Denman. He is not good. He has no range. The kid is pretty convincing. He's well cast. He can look very innocent and very malevolent. But it's not scary. That's a real problem with it. It it, it needs needed more of a sense of imposing dread, but perhaps has to do with the predictability. Uh, but also to do with the way it's like shot, it's a bit too bright, it's a bit too TV movie, a bit too swiftly edited, and obviously too predictable. And and also it it's got f- sort of these plot issues which I couldn't quite get past. For like for example, like I mentioned that the parents um, have hung on to the spaceship basically, and and the fact that they they're harboring this secret and keeping it from their son sort of undermines our sympathy for them um and which is quite a crucial thing because obviously we're really meant to be on their side really um but so that doesn't work very well and there's there's no consistency in the actual character of Brandon himself like one minute he is terrified genuinely terrified of his parents thinking that he's different or hiding something and then the next minute he is deliberately acting really cruel and vicious in front of them and i just couldn't it's it was just weird and inconsistent um and i'm just trying to think if this is a spoiler or not um 
like yeah, no there are there, there are elements of this which don't make sense as well about the the parents characters as well for example like the two parents they seem in utter disbelief that there could be anything um unnatural or malevolent about their son about their adopted son who they literally dragged out of a crash spaceship and they think ah Oh, there's something weird about him. Oh, really? Is there? How how odd that this creature fell from the sky who happens to look like us, and you think there might be something a little bit odd about him? Um, yeah. So, and in the end, like like her her in particular, her whole hyper defensiveness of this kid who's clearly gone bonkers, um, it's not consistent at all with the compassionate nature of her character, like she's acting irrationally and and it's full of these um inconsistent illogical character actions and motivations they seem to just be acting at the service of the plot rather than acting like the characters they're supposed to be Mm. so in short it's a decent idea but it's got completely nonsensical script and characterization and it's not scary and it's quite blandly directed, and I'd say it's below average. Well, that's a shame because it, it is it weirdly on my radar, but I I've I just not pulled the trigger, and uh, that has just put the final nail in the coffin for me. So I doubt I'll watch that because I mean, below, I'm not a fan of you know superhero, which which will tie into what I'm going to say next. I'm not a massive fan of any sort of superhero thing really. But one that is just, uh, you know, takes takes a, a solid premise and then and then just sort of pups on it. You think, eh, I don't know, rather spend my time watching something that does something a little bit different at least. Mm. And and that leads me into and and I gotta say, this is telling that I actually forgot I, I was watching this until you mentioned superhero films. I watched Spider Man Far From Home, right? Okay, is this the one in Italy? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. Oh, please, Rupert. Italy, London, uh, Paris. Um, I Prague. I put this on because uh, my son is, although he's only three months old, seems seems to only really pay attention to television when Ninjago is on, um, and right. I don't know if it, I thought it was obviously like the colours or something. So, or maybe he recognises the voices from me just chucking it on so often. So I thought, well, Spider Man, you know, it's 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 pretty bold colours. I'll I'll throw that on uh, when I was uh, looking after him the other night. And I, as you know, I've got a sort of an unwritten rule when it comes to action films, where I tend to not enjoy them if something blows up that's bigger than a garden shed. I t- I tend to just think, oh, it's just a lot of CG in it, and it it just, I don't know. When there's a huge amount of destruction on screen, I feel like it's a load of people saying jokes at once, and I just think, ah, oh, this is just, there's no... It's the problem I've got with Superman comics from the start, because there's everything is some sort of, because of his powers, is some sort of intergalactic universe-ending assault, and you think, ah, oh, that means I just can't relate to anything! So, I, I was, I put it on because I thought it was Tom Holland, you know, who's, who's a cool guy, and... I recently watched John Favreau's Chef on Netflix because I, I love yeah. the film Chef and I like eating and I just find John Favreau a really amiable bloke. So yes. I kind of watched this more for Happy Ogre than the Spider-Man, quite frankly. So yeah, as as you alluded to, this is a film starring Tom Holland uh, and he is Spider-Man and he's trying to... I haven't seen the prequel, which was called something else? Near to Home? I'm not sure. I <laughs> yeah. can't remember. 
in the taxi. You know, it was called Homecoming. Yeah, you got oh. Homecoming. This was far from home. The next one's called No Way Home. They just sound like John Bon Jovi album titles. Um, so, yeah, so this kicks off, and he he is. I don't know what's happened in the Avengers film. I haven't seen any of them. Don't, don't know what's happened in the Spider-Man franchise. I haven't seen any of them since Sam Raimi. So he is. He basically starts off from from, the, from what I gather, a load of people are dead, and he is, just wants to go on holiday. <laughs> Boom! Twenty years sorted, Marvel phase one for Brit, and it, he. So yeah, he's he wants to get with um, MJ and just get back into being a high school student, even though he's in his late twenties, and um, he is being pulled into the superhero game by by Nick Fury, and Jake Gyllenhaal comes in as Mysterio. Uh, who uh, claims to be someone from another planet, and they need uh, Peter Parker to sort of help them stop this threat of elementals. Um, and no, there's no, I don't need to talk about the plot anymore because it's, it's typical superhero fear. What I, this really, uh, the last Marvel film I saw was this Ant Man and the Wasp, which I enjoyed because mm. A, really fancy Paul Rudd, and B, it was standalone and it felt little in size. I know that's mm. not that's not a pun, but it did feel like its own little film, and I could mm. thoroughly enjoy it on, on its own merit. Yeah. The, this film is ostensibly it is just a te- a coming of age, slightly awkward teen comedy, um, yes. and there were moments when um, you, you know he's getting dragged into it with Nick Fury, and and he's saying, "Oh, I don't want to do this. I just want to. I just want to tell MJ that I fancy her." And there's a lot of sort of bickering and bantering between. Between his his classmates and there's some like funny funny jokes and you know a nice little banter and I was really enjoying it and then what would happen is he would put on the costume and get in some big battle and I'd think oh yeah, yeah. it's a Marvel film isn't it <laughs> and and I and I would just zone out for a bit until until the explosions had stopped and also uh, without without spoiling there's this there's this this film just takes a a plot point effectively or a plot twist from Iron Man three and just does it again. And yes. And I said, right. Okay. And I was just, and then of course the more, the back end of the film is weighted more towards the, I'll just call it the Marvel dumb. And yes. I was just really losing interest. And quite frankly, after the last sort of fight sequence before it went into the, you know, the, the, the coda and then the inevitable mid and post and post post credit sequence, which would mean nothing to me. I just turned it off. I, I would say mm. it is an average film. Like, I mean, coming at it as someone, and I used to read Spider-Man comics and I still, I still like Wolverine comics and I love Batman, but I think with this whole, the Marvel phases, you have to be on board you, I just mm. dived into this, and I wasn't lost just because I know. I mean, all everything is a rehash of of they just bring, you know everything's a rehash. I knew every character, but it just felt so safe, really safe. Yeah. And this is full of some very capable people who are capable of things, and and it just felt like I, unless you're completely lost in the mythology, then you're just going to watch and think, oh, that was good fun. My mother is the kind of person that gets very impressed by large-scale events and, and right. CG, and I am not that person. And for me, I was much more interested in the smaller-scale stuff, which peters out. Hey, peters out! Hey. As, as the film goes on. and It, it is particularly large-scale in this for something which is a kind of teenage drama. Like, 
towards the end, like you get like um, a kind of water beast, don't you? And then at the end, it's millions of like flying things. Yeah. So, mm. yeah, it was. Uh, I, I've seen it a couple of times. This actually, and Why? I do think Tom, I think Tom Holland is 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 good. Uh, I I love his awkwardness. I do love yes. the. I, I know that's a thing of of Peter Parker, but I I love his awkwardness. And I thought I li- I liked his his friend. I think his name's Ned and and MJ. And I liked the little twist they did. But again, I like that part of the film. It's just yeah. every time he put the I thought it's a Marvel film, and that is. Ex- I don't know if I said this before. That was exactly my problem with WandaVision. The fifties and sixties TV stuff was so well done and so yeah. enjoyable and so on the ball. And the second. Second, they went back to a load of people looking at screens and referencing characters. I thought, oh yeah, it's Marvel, isn't it? Ah, yes. Well, yeah. It seems that they're destined to. They they have to play it safe to a certain extent, don't they? I mean, they can't really take any true risks because if you're if you're bound into this shared universe, then nothing can really rock that boat, can it? Ultimately, I mean, you can have. What I find is that a lot of these Marvel works, and I suppose WandaVision is a perfect example of it in a way, that you're, it, it can throw in some really left-field ideas at the start, but it will always have to, you know, the boat is rocking at the start, but it'll always have to settle at some point to get it back to this shared universe, which cannot be, which can't be too unpredictable that way so it always ends up being pretty average and that's what i find with a lot of these marvel films like i will watch them and think of like for the first half hour this is brilliant this is my my favorite so far by the end i'm like i'm exactly where i was at the end of the last film i saw i, I will say as well that um although the, the siege in this did feel weighty like the the, the special effects are absolutely fine yeah. um i i am sick of drones in films <laughs> really sick of drones in films I just wanted to say that <laughs> you're drones phobic okay um what is that on where where is that is that on Disney did you watch some Disney hmm I, f- I thought it was on Amazon Prime but it could well have been on Disney Plus right yeah oh, well Nick- I mean it, it's not too different I mean the first one is, again it's same issues really uh, same but it's, got, but it's got michael keaton in it though it has got michael keaton in it and he is good and it because some quite subtle kind of like jokey references to his batman characters that's cool yeah it was fine first one um right well i'm gonna i'm probably gonna skip a few here because literally i'm looking at my notes on one film on here i don't even remember watching that's pretty bad <laughs> But um, I'll I'll skip down to uh, Queen and Slim, which is on Prime. Uh, And this is a 2019 romantic thriller. Stars David Kaluuya uh, of Get Out fame and Jodie Turner-Smith. By the way, before you go on, I did want to say one thing about... Sorry, I do apologise about Spider-Man. Yes. Um, I put this up, but it was on a different tab, so I, I, I didn't see my notes. Um, the director, John Watts, did Clown, which is a really, really good horror film, and Cop yeah. Car, which we both love. And then Ooh. he went on the Spider-Man films. And and oh. the thing is, the I yeah, I, I just want him to... And now he's doing... Spy, it's, so basically, right, it's his, his career is a load of, like, bloody 
what are they called music videos then yeah. clown cop car good gooder which is a word don't look it up and then you've got spider-man 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 fantastic four and you think mm. and the, all those la- those last three he hasn't written he's just directed and you think you have a real knack john yes like, like don't don't just get bigger and bigger don't you know go back to something cool yeah oh that is yeah that is disappointing i love cop car um so yes so queen and slim um Daniel Kaluuya, Jodie Turner-Smith, both British, by the way. They play uh, uh, Americans. They they play a pair. They were on a Tinder date, um, and it doesn't go very well. But on the way home, it goes even worse because they're stopped by police, just a sort of routine traffic stop. But the cop is, uh, well, not very subtly racist, and he needlessly escalates the situation. Uh, there's a beating, and then the cop is shot. Um, so the pair, Daniel Kaluuya and Jodie Turner-Smith, they go on the run, and the rest of the film is them. Basically, they're travelling south to the border uh, with the police looking for them, and they want to board a plane and run away to Central America. And it, it basically charts their various... It's a road movie that charts their various interactions with distant friends and dodgy folks along the way and some run-ins with cops etc um and all while this is happening their bickering turns to bonding and they they fall in love um you sounded like you were from panath then (laughs) um the there is an overarching problem here that they're not out on you know on this kind of odyssey it's not like a Bonnie and Clyde thing where they've got this lust for thrills, right? So all of their decisions are based on what should be necessity and logic. And the problem with that is, is that it's much easier to see where the plausibility breaks down. Um, because you get films like Natural Born Killers, right? And all wild at heart. They get around this because they, they take a very subjective perspective on things. Um and and then you've got something like Badlands, which is basically Bonnie and Clyde, where the kids are incredibly young and painfully in love and and it's very romanticized. With Queen and Slim, it has this quite naturalistic approach to things and a very current relevance, which ostensibly anyway, puts it in the real world. But but then it populates that real world with stuff that would never happen, basically. And just I, I found myself completely bombarded with questions in my mind about like why do these otherwise sensible and educated people go on the run in the first place um why after she's been shot um and she's bleeding why would this guy in a truck stop to give them a lift rather than calling an ambulance there and then and how does her wound magically heal like the next day? And, it, and you've got these absurd situations all the time, like which seem to be trying to make a point rather than being in any way believable interactions um, with people. I, I, I don't want to give too many examples because it's um, kind of spoilerific, I suppose, if I go that down that route. But, um, and they, but I will give one example where... They go to, they're obviously on the run and the cops are everywhere looking for them and people keep on recognising them. So 
there's one scene where they stop at this packed bar in the in the middle of nowhere but they the bar is absolutely packed and so they just go in to have a drink and have a dance and the rationale behind this is they're tired of playing it safe apparently but it's like but you're trying to survive it's not really about playing it safe it's just surviving so it doesn't make any sense um and also like queen who's the woman she's a lawyer right and she works within a very rigid legal system and yet she is utterly driven by an inherent distrust of any social system whatsoever it's ridiculous um the director is someone called melina matsukas she's a music video director um and the film certainly looks quite lovely and has its fair share of musical montages um yeah so there's a lot of time spent with montages and people and characters agonizing over their actions um even though most of their actions are nonsensical um once you do get over the absurdities then the love story stuff is quite nicely observed i will say that um i like how they're they're basically forced into assuming that every moment could be their last so they so they do stuff together based on that assumption which is quite a nice little dynamic um but then there'll just be these weird scenes which don't really make any sense and seem much more music video-y than actually coherently in keeping with the plot like there's this really strange scene where we we watch this kid they've met committing murder at this anti-police brutality protest um and so that's all happening but it's intercut with a, like a really raunchy sex scene between queen and slim it's like hmm i don't get the connection there at all but anyway um oh and there's this really really stupid scene where this this white cop refers to his black co colleague as a city boy and somehow this is perceived as some kind of racist microaggression but anyway this small act seems to cause this black cop to let queen and slim go when they when he confronts them it's like it's like he realizes all oh, right well you know because i misinterpreted what this other cop said to me i'm gonna let them go it's it's weird it's it's like it just it's another thing which just it doesn't make any sense in terms of like anything that might happen in real life um so it's overall it's an occasionally seductive but a very muddled drama and it's really dragged down by some very clumsy social commentary um and long long kind of stretches of r&b mood making i did really want to like it because i do like daniel clear a lot mm. but i i just didn't buy it at all no do you like him because his surname sounds a bit like a cream-based alcoholic drink? Yes, which goes into white Russians. So, God, I don't know. That was my heartburn. That was my heartburn solver when I was in my oh, early twenties. So, so good. When you're absolutely battered and you get really bad heartburn from drinking loads of tequila and cranberry juice, you think, "Oh, I just need a couple of white Russians to level me out so I can get back on the drinking." Good, good days, good days. I'm dead now. This, I am a ghost, and this is a recording thousands of recordings about films yet to be released probably my best album 
uh, definitely my most forward thinking is it's written by Michael Crichton actually. <laughs> um, so I yeah no I I heard a lot about uh, mixed things about Queen and Slim because mm-hmm. admittedly the fr- promotion for it made it look Bonnie and Clyde, mm. and and yeah and then our, our mutual friend, well we'll have to give him a pseudonym of the saucy accountant watched it <laughs> and he he said it was really disappointing and mm-hmm. uh, and yeah so it, what you said pretty much dovetails in with that mm-hmm. i wanted to talk about tomb raider from 2018 because this is the film i watched in a hotel so i watched yeah it was it was really bizarre because i you know you Again, I don't watch television at all. I cannot stress that enough. I don't. I don't even know how the guides work, or I, f- I forgot about adverts. And it said, you know, Tomb Raider 2018. And from what I could see on the weird, awkward guide on the TV, it was like three and a half hours long. And I thought, oh, I didn't realize it was that long. And it was, of course, just split up with multiple adverts and the two news intermissions. Yeah, I love it when they put the news in between us. Like, really, come yeah. on. I just thought I really I was so I was so removed. Um but yeah, look at this, it's 118, it's just under two hours. Um so familiar with the franchise, obviously. I have played the the 2013 video game that which was the start of what I believe turned into a reboot trilogy. Yes. So uh, this I'm assuming was made on the back of that to have that more um naturalistic appeal, which is which is fine. Um, I I don't even really want. To, I I just want to talk about like the televisual aspects of it. But so uh, yeah, uh, Lara Croft is played by Alicia Vikander, who is making a living as a bike courier. Her father, Richard Croft, has gone missing, and she goes to this, uh, gets a boat to this distant island, where she discovers that Walton Goggins is a bit of a sweaty tinker, and they're trying to get into a. Uh, a temple that her father discovered but then disappeared before he could tell anyone about and Walton Goggins is thinking that oh Lara can you know if I threaten her enough with my gun she'll tell me where it is and then I can uh, get the riches from it it is an extremely generic film like yes, it is. I, I, I remember at the time when this was when the, the initial reviews came out and people were saying that it was really visceral and it was a sequence of of Alicia Vikander just being attacked by different groups of men, and she was sort of a, a powerless heroine. And I, I genuinely don't know if it's to do with the TV editing or not, but it was basically just Walton Goggins just, just pointing a gun at her and then laughing every now and again. And her, yeah, the more more of the danger came from the the sort of set pieces, which and that was the best part of the film, where she really. Uh, sort of John McClane their way through some really tough situations in the middle of the film and involving a rusting, rusting plane in the middle of a waterfall and getting into a, a midnight fist fight with it, with it, with a guerrilla warrior and just lucking through it. And I was like loving that, but then it, it just became, it was so by the numbers, really, really by the numbers. Mm. And I, I, gen- mm. oh, I just was going to say there were moments in this film where I didn't know if the signal on the TV in the hotel had cut out or if that was just how it was edited, where someone would pull a gun out and you you wouldn't even hear a gunshot and then it would just show him running out of a building. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened then. 
So uh, yeah, well, I I don't I don't know if it's a good film or not because I don't think I, I didn't watched see much all of it. I saw the news and the adverts, but I want to buy detergent now. But yeah, it um, it just I it saw felt it very cinema. Safe. I don't remember. It didn't strike me as particularly visceral. But then I played the video game trilogy in which she basically plays a mass murderer shooting people in the head with a bow and arrow. So that is a bit different. They couldn't really have portrayed that on the screen, obviously. But it no, it's not particularly visceral. I just I just found it extremely forgettable. Yeah. Like I really can't remember much from it. I remember Dominic West being a dad. Thing. Yes, with a mullet. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I forgot Walton Goggins was in it was is a shocker, really, because he is a distinctive man. Mm. It, um, it's considering he's been on an island for seven or eight years, dig like basically just making a slave force dig for a, a forgotten temple. His teeth are pearly white. <laughs> Early white, so um, yeah, it just rubbing on the dock leaves. That's why. On the ending sequence, this film, the the last scene, it is desperate to be a franchise. Oh yeah, they are making a sequel. Oh, they are making a sequel. I will watch it because I I would just because of course this is the same. This isn't an alone in the darkism where they've made a film based on a franchise based on this uh, sort of gentler version of a reboot from almost over a half decade before. So when they release this next film, it'll be like around no Tomb Raider game. It'll just be the, oh here's an actual here's a sequel to that film that was kind of like a game from five or six years before. So people are gonna really not care about it. Apart from me. Mm. Yeah, I don't know whether I I'm not sure whether I'll Watch it. I mean, I, I'd have to watch this again to remember anything about it. Can, can I just? Um, I'm gonna have to. Can I take? Can I take a two second break to pour a drink if that's okay? Jeez. But I, I, before the break, I just want to say that you said earlier on there's a film you watched, and it was so forgettable that you don't even want to talk about it. You moved on, and mm. I had one of those as well. And I just want to mm. do swapsies if that's cool. Yeah. So mine, right? Which, I, I'm I actually want... having to scroll up to find out what it was. Okay, I got it. I watched Harrison Ford in Clear and Present Danger. And and I was watching it and I and I watch films obviously now with, with an eye to thinking, oh, you know, is this gonna be one I'm gonna mention or not? And I watched it thinking it would be one I'd pause, stop, pause, stop, because because my son was gonna be waking up and whatever. And he literally slept throughout it. And I just thought that is nowhere near as good as Firewall. So <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just, it was just it was just nothing to say about it it was just a totally standard 90s thriller so yeah what was yours um it was boogeyman uh from 2005 as in bogeyman but the Americans say boogeyman it's just a just a really shoddy horror it, the amount of dutch tilt in this it's like the tripod is just broken it's it's amazing it's got the worst old person makeup I've ever seen uh, in it. So that's something to set it aside. Um, anything else that I can think of? It's just terrible. It's just, I think they made like sequels as well. It is your turn. And I just talked about mm. Tomb Raider, which is Average, uh, <laughs> which is a, a town in the northern part of Paris. So what have you got next? Um, I'd like to 
talk because I'm I am skipping a few because I want to get to the good stuff uh, before we wrap up. So I I want to talk about Sound of Metal for a bit. Um, nice. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 So this is a prime original, um, and uh, stars Riz Ahmed, uh, who plays a drummer in a metal band or a metal duo, who basically suddenly loses his hearing, and he goes to this home this sort of rehab center for the rehabilitation of deaf people basically to learn to live with deafness essentially um and he in order to do this he has to leave his girlfriend for several months his girlfriend and um like bandmate um so he has to go away for months um and he begs her to wait for him because he's terrified really of of all this of like his whole life being turned upside down obviously it's hell at first but um he gradually learns to accept his ailment which is complete deafness below um so after a while he does stop yelling at himself and he does learn to sign and he does begin to engage with some of the youngsters at these at the school there and Riz Ahmed is always brilliant like uh, in Nightcrawler and Venom and Rogue One and Four Lions, all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's very, very good here as well. Uh, and it's an interesting f- structure for the film in a way, because it starts actually with utter misery and darkness um, and yet draws itself into the light um, almost as the film goes on. Although the final, well, the final third is then quite different again so uh yeah it's a, it's really interesting structure um and, and it does end on a, a properly ambiguous and very poignant note this it won an oscar for editing um and the use of sound is just amazing like you'll be overwhelmed with like really like bellowing noise and then suddenly you'll be plunged into just a long period of silence and and it's clearly a conscious decision on the filmmakers to to n- never kind of placate us with subtitles. And I think that's a really cool decision because it helps us to empathise with his initial bafflement at being thrown into this new world, basically. And it avoids patronising us. And it's surprising how much you can understand just simply through context and facial expressions. It's such a well-written film, like it's one of those films where every scene feels relevant and dramatic in its own way um, and seems to mean something. Um, and I'd say the only part I did, I found a little bit not credible or incredible, in fact, was some of the stuff to do with his relationship with the main guy at the, the kind of the person who's running the, this home, um, it seemed a bit overdramatic, that stuff, but I don't know. It, it It's all leading to the best part of the movie, which is the last third, which it's sort of, it, it's the it's Riz Ahmed's characters, his reintegration into the world of sound, uh, or at least trying to uh, through technology. And, and it's really, really interesting where it goes in that last third. And... I thought it was really, really powerful without sentimentality. And I I loved it. It's the sound of metal. Love it. Did you cry? No. 
because it's not really that kind of movie, it doesn't really have those sorts of moments. I just think it, like, it, it genuinely shifts, changes your perspective on. I can't really say anything about it because otherwise it just gives it away. But, but it it genuinely changed my the way I looked at um like just a profound disability really, and how. Because of the way it changes his perspective, it changed my perspective, and I thought that was really interesting. And he's so good. Things about Riz Ahmed, he's he's so good. He's got these kind of really kind of glaring eyes, you know, but he acts so well. Obviously, a lot of the time he's not saying anything, or or he's acting on his own, uh, and it's all very internalized kind of pain. And he's brilliant. And he he was Oscar nominated, but didn't win sadly. But his time will come. Um, one of the most terrifying, uh, musically terrifying moments of my life was, um, uh, it was a while ago now, we played a, uh, a gig, an open air gig, and I've got a big Marshall stack, and I face left when I play, when I'm not singing, I face left, and the the guy said, oh, nothing is, is it was an outdoor festival in, like, in, in the back of a, a, a pub sort of thing, and he said, it, it's not going to be Mike Depp, so you just have to ramp up the, the volume of your guitar. So I ramped it up and I played and I thought, like, as we were doing the gig, I thought, God, that's really loud to me because I was right next to it. And it was because I was on the floor, but this, the amp, because of room problems, it was uh, like basically ear level for me. And mm. I, I remember playing like an hour long set thinking, God, that's really loud. It's giving a bit of a headache. And when it finished, Alex, our drummer, came over to say that was a good gig. And when he spoke in my left ear, it sounded like a really cheap PC speaker and the cable was dodgy. <sighs> it was like there was no, it was just really tinny. And his voice was cutting in and out like a, like a cable wasn't connecting. And I thought I'd deafen myself. And it was oh really weird because people were coming up saying that's an awesome gig. And like, asking me, like, oh, have you got any CDs and stuff? And I just wanted to cry because I thought, mm. I, think, I think I've blown my eardrum. So I, I've avoided this because of that. Because it, it, I can imagine it would just take me back to how I felt. <laughs> felt like this weird mix yeah. of emotions where it's really celebratory. But then you could think, thinking, what have I done to myself? Um it's fine now. Um, I'm making. I can listen to Dokken all night long for no problem. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's. I've avoided, and I'm, that's why I said I wasn't just being, you know, facetious. Did you cry? I just wondered what kind of film it was because I think I would struggle if it was, if it was a bit heavy duty with you. No, the it's not. Uh, it's definitely. It's not like a tearjerker. It, it never. Um, it, its currency is not sympathy. Put it that way. Cool. I may watch that if I'm feeling brave. I think you definitely should. I think you'd really enjoy it. But our listeners should should watch it. Yes. Metal duo, is she playing bass or guitar? Uh, guitar. Oh, okay. So there's no bass in a metal band. Bit odd. There's only two of them. Or so it seems. Oh, fair enough. It just seems odd. Usually, when it's um, like a, a two-piece band with um, guitar and drums, it's just sort of like a throwback garage rock thing. So uh... it's it's pretty throwback. I mean, like there aren't actually many real like band scenes. To, oh, fair enough. It, and they tend to be quite thrashy. It tends to be him expressing himself on the drums. I'm guessing he learned at least rudimentary drumming because he seems pretty convincing. Uh, I no, I that is, that is if I literally said he learned rudimentary drumming because you know it's pretty convincing but pretty basic, and then it's just all solidly, um, no symbols. Uh, I watched The Mexican from 2001. I this is bizarre, right? I don't know what caused this. Well, I sort of do know what caused this. 
I was in a situation where for the first time in three months, I was looking after my son alone, which is fine. But I thought, well, I don't want to put anything on that's going to make me laugh. And I don't want to put anything on that's going to be scary or loud or banging. And I don't want to put an action film on because of gunshots. So I opted for romantic comedy from 2001. Because <laughs> I thought, well, if he falls asleep, this, you know, it's just going to be rolling along in the background. And if he wakes up, I don't care if I miss it. So this is a film I watched, again, going back to my video store days. I watched multiple times because I find it really rewatchable. Possibly because I think Julia Roberts in this film is the hottest she has ever been in her entire life. And so is Brad Pitt. So <laughs> the film is that, uh, the, sorry, the, the, the plot is that uh, Brad Pitt plays someone called Jerry Wellback, who is, because of a car accident, is uh, owing uh, a mob family a load of jobs. And Julie Roberts is his put-upon partner, and they have quite a feisty relationship, which I'll get back to in a bit. And he has got to go to Mexico to get this pistol and bring it back. That's all he's got to do. But of course, <laughs> heaven is against him. And through a series of really unlikely but funny events, he just gets involved with the Mexican police and rival gangs and so on. And there's double crossings and so on and so forth. Uh, met, and also one of the highlights of this film is someone we talked about last week. I didn't know who he was. Uh, Bob Balaban. In the morning, <laughs> just, being yes, yes. just just being amazing again, and um, yeah, and uh, one of Gene Hackman's last films as well. So it, it's sort of a, a, a romantic comedy, uh, and it just follows two threads, which are Brad Pitt trying to get this gun back to America without being caught by the police, and Julia Roberts on a lengthy road trip with James Gandolfini as a closeted homosexual. Which is they're both equally strong in all fairness. They are they are because I mean these are top notch actors. You know they they know what they're doing. Mm. So it it is it's a really fast paced funny film. I will say though that as much as I enjoyed looking at Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts and I loved the interplay between Julia Roberts and James Gandolfini, there are parts of this film which have aged poorly. In in that um, it, it, there's a sequence where she sort of to. To find out if James Galdafini is gay as she as she thinks, she sort of eggs him on to rape her, and it's done for laughs. But mm-hmm. it, it was still, yeah, I I don't think that happened now. <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, and 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 also, there are plots, there are dialogue points rather than plot points that seem to exist mainly to set up. No one talks like they're real. Um, the, the end when. Uh, um, and this is 20 years, so I can't actually spoil it. When Brad Pitt gets the gun back to Gene Hackman, he what he says is almost nonsensical. It's almost like he's reading multiple drafts of a certain script scene. And mm. you think you, you said a lot of very strange things then. And then Gene Hackman just stands up and just goes into this monologue, uh, which explains the history of the gun. And I thought that was a really odd sequence. And if you watch it, it is bizarre because J- Brad Pitt just reacts in a very odd way to Gene Hackman saying, can you give me the gun? Mm-hmm. It's really odd. And also it's another example of a situation where with Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts, their, their relationship is so tumultuous and a centerpiece, the sort of heart of the story is where Julia Roberts says to uh, James Gandolfini, if you love someone, but you know, you'll never get it together. When is, when is enough enough? And he says, never. And she repeats that to Brad Pitt, and he says never, and that's what makes her fall in love with him. And I thought, mm, but mm-hmm. if you love someone 
and you know you've got six years ahead of you of solid arguing. Maybe you should just think, look, we just fancy each other. Maybe we should knock it on the head because this is going to be really shit, really shit for over half a century of just a yeah, shout. I... Because all we see of their relationship is arguing and then them separating and saying, oh, babe, you know, oh, yeah, I miss you, I miss you. And then they get back together and then when they reconnect, they argue again. So that, that yeah, that's whole, not good. That's just a toxic relationship. It, it just didn't sell anything to me at all. Really, that's ne- almost like, as bad as um, the, the so called classic line from Love Story of Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill, yeah. Where the, the kind of the key line is um, being in love or being married, I think he says, is uh, means never having to say you're sorry. And it's meant to be really romantic. And I just thought, well, that's stupid. Why do you never what? So you're going to go through an entire life of marriage to someone and never have to say sorry. Well, that's ridiculous. So, why why so, wouldn't you say sorry? It's so just his, polite. His idea of love is his wife saying, Ryan, can you can you come in the bathroom? And then he stands in the doorway and she points at a load of shit going <laughs> up the back of the bowl like a load of dry shit and says... <laughs> You flush it, be but it's got caught and you haven't like knocked it off with a toilet brush. And then he just stares back at it stoically. And <laughs> exactly. And then she's thinking, oh, I love him more than ever in this moment. In yeah. this moment when he's completely ignoring my completely reasonable complaint. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, yeah. I think there's an over-romanticization at the heart of the film. but And especially watching it with, you know, James Gandolfini's not kicking around anymore. It it does, it it does, uh, it it doesn't. I mean, I've never watched The Sopranos because it's on television, but it, it whenever I see him in a film, like he was in um, Get Shorty as well, it does make me miss him. It's it's a, it's a really much missed talent because he had a really, it was like an oddly cumbersome and yet tender screen presence. Yes, so, well, yeah. which is exactly why he was so good in Sopranos. Yeah. I don't think he. I don't think he's had extraordinary range, but he, yeah, I know what you mean. He had that big, kind of, I wouldn't say cuddly bear, but he was a bear with a sore paw, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. No. Yeah. Good guy. And and it is a good film. It's a really good film. But um, it, it just whenever whenever it gets into um, romantic dialogue, an eyebrow was raised so much that eventually at one point I just went up my bum. <laughs> That's a raised brow. Um, so, are we are we wrapping up? Is this a moment? Yeah, it's it's. I know it's it's, it's cracking on for two hours. So, um, I've actually I've got a few more in here, but uh, oh, yeah, no, I've got a few more. We're gonna have yeah. to. We'll do a catch up. Do something we, about this. We'll we could do a quick have to do a catch up. And a, a midweek hour long catch up. So, yeah. yeah, like I said, I've watched um, some good ones this week. I, I love Naked Gun because it it made it it knocked away any um, prejudice out against. Um, uh, 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 Leslie Nielsen, Clear and Present Danger was very forgettable. Runaway was auto prescient. Tomb Raider was generic. Um, there's a few I haven't talked about here, but I think, I think Saint Maud, um, m- in a very different way to the reason I enjoyed the Block Island sound, it was a real nice '70s throwback, mm. and it, and I and I really enjoyed. It. It's nice to watch a film where you don't know it's going to go. And then it goes places you think, yes, yes, yes. And then that final scene, that final flash of a two-second scene at the end just made my trousers fly out the window and just start a, a new life with their own family. So I'm happy with that. So for my film of the week is St. Maud. Yeah, I had a lot of disappointments this week. 
Um, but I, I think the sound, the sound of metal was such a lovely surprise because I, I was expecting uh, a movie about metal music. <laughs> like I thought that was what it's going to be, but it's got a double meaning and it's the title and it's, it's really about, it's just a really well-observed, brilliantly acted drama which never goes down a sentimental route so highly recommended can i can i before we end this episode can i mm. present a situation to you if i may sure sure i want i want you to close your eyes okay okay so close your eyes and imagine that you are working away from home away from your family no one mm. knows where you are apart from your boss you're in a hotel bar and you're just ordering another, just another double maker's mark before you get to your room. You've had a nice night. You're nicely loosened up. You're nicely warmed up. And someone taps you on the shoulder and pulls you into conversation. And you're chatting and chatting and chatting. And you're laughing, laughing at his jokes and having a good time. And he buys a few more drinks and you're in a quiet, darkened corner of the bar. And he, you realize he's got his hand on your thigh and he leans in for a kiss. And it's Riz Ahmed. <laughs> what is your response? I was, sometimes you just have to let fate take its course, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I was looking at a picture of him and you talked about the sound of metal and I thought, oh, I could very easily be kissed by you. To be honest, I reckon <laughs> I reckon I could literally be at like writing services having a pee on a journey and he could tap me on the shoulder and get a quick snogging. I wouldn't even need to have that, those surroundings in that situation. He's still uh, a bit young for for my taste but um i don't know, give it give him a few years a bit of bit of pebble dash yeah, yeah but in my in, in my fantasies i've quickly got a lot of tip x in his beard <laughs> are you sure you're not just trying to paint sam neil i <laughs> are you going to watch um any films with rick Yunin this week no <laughs> that was so because he was awful that was so definitive. I want to do it, but I think a lot of his stuff is in television. Um, I yeah, I, I I want to because I, he can't he can't be that bad and have a career. Uh, you'd be surprised. I mean, Al <laughs> Clive made ends meet, didn't he? I suppose. Yeah, as a realtor, not as an actor. So <laughs> yeah, yeah there's okay. So we we do a midweek catch up basically, a I quick hour long so. catch up. So. Um, so yeah, thank. Thank you for listening, everyone. And Rupert, the, the last thing to say is you've got your Arkansas, obviously. Oh, yes. That I've got a yes. set for you. So I want you to get from Morvid Clark mm-hmm. to Leslie Nielsen. Wow. Okay. Ah, that can't be too difficult. I'm sure they started something together, right? Well, they're they're both in Saint Maud. <laughs> Leslie Nielsen's dead, isn't he? Yeah, sadly so. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that yeah. up. Yeah, there's a scene where Morvith Clark is like torturing herself physically and lost in religious ecstasy, and she floats to the top of a really cramped, cockroach-infested. Scarborough apartment and as her nose bumps against the ceiling she can see that someone has pinned a photograph of Les Nielsen in Dracula dead and loving it to a skirting board <laughs> so yeah that's an easy one for you 
<laughs> Easy, there you go. <laughs> um, that'll be an interesting journey, yeah. Okay, I'll get to work on that. I'll see you in three months. Love you. Okay, bye.